Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Today we're going to spotlight the William A. Bernard Warming Center in Logan. We'll talk about how the center was founded, how things went in its first year of operation, which was last winter, and look ahead to this season, which begins in December. We'll ask what the difference is between a warming center and a homeless shelter. We'll also talk about the causes of homelessness in Cache Valley and how those causes differ from other areas of the state. Our guests include Jess Lucero, who's department head of the USU Social Work Department and point-in-time count lead for Bear River. Jess Lucero, welcome to the program. Hi, Tom. Happy to be here. Let's see. We need to change the microphone. We, we did change the microphone. I, I threw a, a curve to my engineer, so... Uh, we'll, we'll get her microphone going. Um, and we'll also, we also have in studio Janet Boldman, a volunteer coordinator for the William A. Bernard Warming Center. Uh, thanks for coming in. Thank you. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Let's see. Do we have Jess? Yep. Okay, good. All right. Um, so uh, I want to, just at the beginning here, I want to play a little video that's uh, on the uh, Warming Center uh, website. And uh, this kind of uh, outlines what the center is a little bit. And then uh, I guess talking about uh, the experience of being a volunteer. And one of the things we want to encourage you to do during this hour today is to consider being a volunteer uh, this, this year. It's this season. Uh, so let's uh, hear this. You'll, uh, you'll hear uh, Nicole Bernard, who founded the center. Um, Jane Walters, who is a USU. Uh, Jamie Walters, I should say, who's a USU professor and uh, on the board, I believe. And then you'll hear the voice of a volunteer, uh, Zoe Thomas. Uh, so let's hear this. The solution to homelessness is getting people housed. It's getting them into homes. But what do we do when that's not available? People need shelter now. They need to feel safe and stay alive during freezing temperatures now. That was really what motivated me to address this critical need in Cache Valley for emergency shelter, especially during winter months. The first season went so much better than I had anticipated. Once we were able to educate people about what the warming center was, we were able to get people coming on a regular basis, and now we're serving 15 to 20 people a night. It's incredible. We've been able to stay open every night since December 9th. We're 100% run by volunteers, and it is clear after this first season that this is not my project. This is the community's project. And yes, I may have gotten it started, but the community is what's going to carry it. It has not only been a positive impact on those individuals that come here and stay here, but also a positive impact on volunteers. I became a volunteer as part of my internship for my undergraduate degree. But as I have spent more time here and more hours on site, it has turned into more than an internship. It has turned into an experience that has forever changed me, and it will forever change me. The possibilities are endless in a community like ours, where our winters are so hard, and our community is just continuing to grow. And so I do think that this will be a thing for the future, and the only way to go is up. Uh, so there's a, a bit of a video, a little, little introduction to the William A. Bernard Warming Center. By the way, the sounds you hear, uh, if you're watching the video, you'd know what that is. The sounds you hear on the audio for the radio audience is uh, people setting up the beds uh, for that for that evening. Um, so let me turn um, turn to you, Janet Boldman. Um, difference between a warming center and a homeless shelter? Um, a homeless shelter 
is um, has its own unique building. Um, we borrowed the space from St. John's Episcopal Church, and we use their um, reception hall, which they've been very, very generous um, to donate during during that time. A homeless shelter is open year-round, um, from sunup to sundown, and they provide um, meals, clothing, um, a lot of other needs that those who are unhoused may need. A warming shelter... Um, a warming center, such as ours, such as the William A. Bernard Warming Center, um, provides a safe, warm place during the coldest nights of the year. Um, so they, they come in. We don't cook them a meal. We have snacks and individually wrapped, um, like granola bars, um, oatmeal, coffee, um, hot chocolate, water, uh, things like that that they can take with them or eat while they're there, but we do not um, provide a meal for them. Um, we have socks, backpacks, things like that for them, but not on a regular basis. And uh, I guess we need a warming center. It, it is Cache Valley, right? Temperatures drop pretty far during the winter. Yes, yes, below freezing temperatures. Um, so is it, are these single individuals, families, I guess you take, uh, take, take anybody? Yes, both, um, men, women, families, young families, sometimes they'll have, um, a support animal, a dog or a cat. We take them as well because we don't want to turn anybody down. So if they have, um, a support animal that, that they have with them, we don't want to tell them no at the door because they have a pet. So we provide for that as well. Yeah. Um, so, uh, we'll, we'll return to this a little later in the, in the, uh, hour, but, uh, you need volunteers. We but, always, uh, who, we who, who always, volunteers? who can volunteer? We always need volunteers. Um, anyone over the age of 18, uh, we put them through a training, uh, online training when they're signing up to volunteer so that they have some tools and some confidence going into the training. Um, we also provide, um, some training, in-person training throughout the season if questions arise or different situations come up and, and they, they have things that they need a little support on, we're there to provide that for them. Um, so we always need volunteers on-site and we have a lot of off-site um, opportunities for them as well, behind-the-scenes type things. Um, so Zoe Thomas, who's in the video, she, she called this life-changing. What, what do you hear from volunteers? Exactly that. Uh, people come to volunteer for lots of different reasons. Um, maybe they've been faced with um, hope, uh, homelessness at some point in their life, or maybe a family member has, um, or a community member that they know, or they just want to be involved in the community. Um, so that brings them to us. Um, lots of different reasons um, that we that volunteers come and seek us out. And once you do start volunteering, me personally, just like Zoe, it is life-changing. Um, a lot of times I'll go for a morning shift and it'll be maybe by 5.30 in the morning and I'm cold and it's dark out and it's snowy and I'm wondering, why am I doing this? I'd love, rather be in my nice warm bed at home. And once I, I get there and I arrive and I see some of the guests and I work with them and I chat with them and realize that they're just they're human beings just like us and they have their own personal stories my questions are quickly answered and and I'm more than happy to be there and um, a lot of us did not want the season to end 
it was hard hmm. to say goodbye. Yeah, and this is just during the winter months, basically. When, when does yes. it open this time around? Um, opening night will be December 4th. Last year it was December 9th. We're opening a little bit sooner this year, not a lot, about a week earlier. Um, and But I believe, I don't know if it's absolute yet, I believe we're going to stay open a month longer to the end of April. Last year we had to close the end of March. Yeah. Um, let me turn to Jess Lucero. Um, so the, the folks who uh, might need this, this shelter, um, tell me who's homeless in in cash flow, some demographics, with, with, and then we get into some causes. Yeah, yeah, Tom. So just like Janet said, it's a it's a mixture of, of single individuals, families with children, uh, all sorts of varied household compositions. Um, as as you mentioned, I'm the point in time count lead for our, our Bear River area. That's cash rich in Box Elder County. I've been leading the, the point in time count, which happens every January for the last five or so years. Um, and so I have a good pulse on what those numbers of unsheltered and sheltered homelessness look like in, in Cash Valley in particular. Um, and it really is about, uh, about half and half of households with children and then single, uh, single individuals. Um, sometimes you'll see households that, uh, take on a different composition, maybe a, a couple of adults or even several adults that consider themselves family, right? Might, might not be blood related. Um, and oftentimes in, in Cache Valley, what we see with homelessness, um, we have both chronic and uh, more kind of situational types of homelessness. Um, often those who are uh, in more situational uh, homelessness um, scenarios are folks who have a car, who may have, um, often have jobs, um, but for one reason or another, uh, the dominoes have effect has happened in their life where they can't come up with the first and last and uh, deposit to get into um, into a, a rental property. Um, we all know how uh, difficult the rental market has become the last few years, too, and that's kind of exacerbated things. So we've really seen an uptick in um, uh, in folks who are unhoused here here in our community. Um, but like I said, it's about half and half of like that those situational and those that are um, a little bit more chronic and the causes are different for both. The, the, on the situational side, it usually is um, connected to uh, a major um, financial crisis, something that puts them behind, whether that's medical debt or getting behind on rent and then fees that accumulate and, and other pieces. And, and it's Folks end up either uh, evic evicted or getting a non-renewal of a lease um, and then find major difficulties in our housing market getting back into housing. Um, uh, people living in their cars? What's what, yeah. what's happening in Cache Valley? Yeah, I'd say the most common place that folks are finding some form of shelter is in their cars. Mm -hmm. um, oftentimes, during point-in-time count, we'll find folks who are in their cars in uh, either big box kind of parking lots, well-lit places, um, or we'll, we'll, we'll also find folks who are taking shelter in their cars at their place of employment in the parking lot or in gym parking lots or other types of, of places where they'll their next step will be to get their shower or whatever they need to start their day. Um, and people with jobs. Yeah. That, that there's, there's a perception sometimes that um, homeless don't have jobs. Yeah, absolutely there is. And I think that's something that for sure is uh, it needs to be dispelled as, as a myth. Um, like I said, it, you, you know, you can imagine how quickly, it, say you're paying, needing to pay 1500 for a rental unit 
per month for your family and you need first and last and then you need a $1,500 deposit. Um, even if you're making uh, decent wages here here in Cache Valley, that's an, a sizable amount of, of cash to have on hand to get into a next place. Um, and so folks sometimes will do a combo too of living in a motel for about half of the month or for the after their pay period for maybe a week. Um, and then they'll they'll go back to their car in between, um, and it's just a very difficult situation to get ahead on. Um, I, I want to uh, highlight a, a story here. This is under our stories section on the wabwarmingcenter.org. This is the website. Um, so the James family. Um, so Christina James tells her story here, um, and she talks about uh, having an abusive husband. Have three kids. Uh, she has some medical problems early on with a, a pregnancy, a, a, a son who didn't survive. And then things just went on for a while and then sort of spiraled. Uh, right, she tried to hold it together and then um, just couldn't. Right, And then she talks about part of the month she'd be in a, in a motel and then part of the month in the car. Yeah, yeah. It's a really common story. And, and, and thanks for bringing that up too, Tom. One thing that um, sometimes we don't think about is how connected domestic violence is with homelessness. It's one of the leading causes of homelessness um, when folks are fleeing uh, violent situations like Christina. Yeah. Um, I'm, I wonder, um, it sounds like that's it's more, um, you can't come up with the rent kind of a thing in, in Cache Valley, right? Yeah. And, you know, I think it's important to say that there's, there's, multiple causes, right? That one of the the fundamental ones, and this seems like such a no-brainer to say, but it usually is, oh yeah, that's true. It's a lack of affordable housing units, right? That's one of the leading causes for homelessness across the country, and Cache Valley included, is not having the number of uh, either fair market rent or even uh, low income, 80%, 50% uh, area median income kind of rental units. Um, we simply don't have the the number that we need to support the um, the folks who are low, extremely low income in our community. Um, domestic violence is another major cause. We'll also see folks, um, you know, sometimes health concerns are connected to homelessness in really important ways. So it might be that um, health, a health crisis precedes homelessness or a health crisis is, is exacerbated by homelessness. Um, but that's oft, oftentimes connected, and that can be physical and mental health. So, you know, in your chronic category, that's often where you'll have folks who are are dealing with co-occurring disorders or have um, severe and persistent mental illness or a substance use disorder. Um, and those folks are really um, have a difficult time navigating the housing market for a number of reasons. They're um, they're considered to have like higher barriers to getting into into housing and. Of course, we have um, folks who are in that chronic category here in, in Cache Valley as well. Um, those numbers are uh, quite a lot smaller than they are in, in more urban areas, certainly. Um, and then we've, as, as I mentioned, you know, more than half um, during our point in time count every year are uh, are connected to those households with children or folks who are in a more of a situational kind of, of homeless category. And most often that is connected to um, uh, to their inability to come up with the rent. Yeah. Uh, let's take a break. When we come back, we'll talk more about this. Um, we are uh, talking about the William A. Bernard Warming Center. It opens uh, for this season December 4th. Um, 
and uh, we're looking for volunteers. Um, after the break, we'll talk uh, some more with Janet Voldman, volunteer coordinator at the center, about uh, how you can volunteer and and uh, there are other ways you can volunteer as well. Uh, we're also talking with Jess Lucero, department head of USU Social Work Department and Point in Time Count Lead for uh, Bear River. More following this break. While you're listening to Utah Public Radio, UPR's informative and thoughtful programming, and Access Utah with host Tom Williams. Near the end of the program on Thursday episodes, listen for Skywatcher Leo T, a short feature at 9.55 a.m. and repeated at 7.55 in the evening. Skywatcher Leo T looks at the sky, night and day, and what's happening in the ever-changing universe and galaxy and solar system around us. Space exploration, such as the Parker Solar Probe to the New Horizons Probe and NASA's Artemis mission to the moon and one sky many cultures as we explore sky lore and observations from native peoples around the world and maybe a little poetry thrown in Skywatcher Leo T on Access Utah 9:55 in the morning and 7:55 p.m. Thursdays on Access Utah and UPR Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and support for U- UPR comes from Utah Humanities and Rural Utah Crossroads Part of Crossroads, Change in Rural America, a traveling exhibition created by the Smithsonian Institution that explores the changing meaning of rural life and identity. Utah Humanities is touring Crossroads to eight rural communities across Utah. Tour location and date details at upr.org. From the Center for Investigative Reporting and PRX, I'm Al Letson of Reveal. Always sworn to secrecy. What happens if... They have evidence. Can I record on the tour? Um, can't do that. I just had a few I just had a few follow-up questions for you since we last spoke. We peel back layers of real-life mysteries over the airwaves every single week on Reveal. Saturday at noon repeats Monday at eleven on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams, and we are uh, talking with the two people involved with the uh, William A. Bernard Warming Center at Logan. We're spotlighting that center uh, today that they open uh, for the season on December 4th. Um, we're talking with uh, Janet Boldness, uh, volunteer coordinator for the William A. Bernard Warming Center, and with Jess Lucero, who's head of the uh, Department of Social Work uh, for Utah State University, also point-in-time count lead for Bear River. Uh, so let me start to Janet Volus with you. Um, how and why did you get involved with the uh, with the center? <laughs> Interesting story. Thank you for asking. Um, good friend of mine, Amy Anderson, who wears many hats in our community. I was kind of going through a transition in my life where I was um, starting retirement and needed to find something more and give back in the community. And so I I. Um, asked Amy, and she had the warming center in mind for me. So my plan was to just make a few phone calls during the week and make sure volunteers reminded them about their shift and and uh, showed up on time and and whatnot. And it quickly quickly evolved into becoming the volunteer coordinator, which I'm very very grateful for. So I can I can thank my my good friend Amy Anderson for getting me involved in this organization. Yeah, we're grateful for Amy. She does wear a lot of hats in the community, right? Um, and one of many. This is we got a lot of great people in the community. Um, 
So um, we were talking with Justin Sarah before the break about uh, sort of the demographics in, in Cache uh, Valley for those who are homeless, those who would need a center like this. Uh, does that jibe with what you uh, are, are, you know, are, have been seeing this, this last uh, season? Absolutely. Um, the demographics for homelessness in Cache Valley do do vary quite a bit. Um, and like Jess said, it it um, a lot of them have just um, like William A. Bernard, who who um, Nicole, our founder, um, William A. Bernard is her grandpa, um, and she uses him as the her motivation for the warming center. Um, through he was very prominent in our community, and through a series of unfortunate events, um, became homeless himself. And um, he was living in his car, and in um, on one of the coldest nights of the year, decided that he felt like he couldn't go on with his life because he just felt like he had no hope living in his car, and it was very cold out. He had no place to go, divorced, lost his job, um, and ended his life. Mm. And I understand uh, because of legal issues, couldn't leave the state. He, he could have gone and lived with children, I suppose, if he'd have been able to live the state. Uh, so, Justin Sarah, uh, on William A. Bernard, the namesake for this center, um, he, uh, I guess his story is typical of some. He had an injury, a uh, home remodel project. It was an injury, was prescribed opiates. Mm-hmm. And uh, became addicted, and and that was part of the problem. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's part of, Tom, what can be, um, we've heard folks in interviews that we've done and um, uh, talk about that domino effect and whether that's uh, getting behind on a, on a piece of rent or, like, I, like I'd said earlier, having a health condition like Williams that precedes um, a, another series of, of events, right? Um, it, things can escalate quickly. And one thing that I think is important to know is really how close to homelessness so many folks in our community really are. Um, on the whole, we are a fairly low-income community, especially just it within the city of Logan, but even more broadly in, in Cache County. Um, and with the way that our housing market has shifted over the last five years, you know, folks are on, on the edge and in that kind of precarious position oftentimes. We'd done some research back in, in 2018 um, that looked at, you know, how a, a number of indicators, but one that I think is important to, to bring up here in 2018, before things really went wild in the rental market, about a quarter of folks, this is about almost 900 uh, individuals who were sampled in, in Cache County, um, worried about becoming homelessness, a quarter of our of, of our Reddit residents here in our community. And so I can only imagine if we conducted that survey now in 2023, that that would be much higher. Um, you um, you did a survey, uh, I think you referenced it before we went on the air, public support for homeless services. Yeah. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah. Like I said, we did this survey in 2018. This was a broad community survey, good sampling method, so pretty representative of, of our community. Um, and we found that about... Uh, it was about 60% of folks said that they would be comfortable with a 
homeless uh, shelter. So we, we distinguish shelter and center in that survey, homeless shelter in their neighborhood, right? It was higher the further out you got, kind of geographic radius you got from where one lived. So it was up to about 75%, you know, in, in their city. But in 2022, we we uh, conducted a similar survey. Um, this was in, in part leading up to the launch of the, the warming center and trying to get a sense of, you know, how needed is this resource? and what kind of public support will there be for it. One thing that, you know, you heard from Janet when she's talking about her volunteers is just, and and we also heard from Zoe, um, how much the community showed up for the center in its first year and how crucial that was for delivering its services. Um, 98% of folks, this is in the 2022 survey that were surveyed, said that there should be an overnight warming center during winter months in Cache Valley. and 93% up from 75% just, uh, let's see, f- four years ago, um, would be supportive of a warming center in, in their city. Um, and surprisingly, 75% would be supportive of a warming center in their neighborhood. Mm. Uh, do we know, this was a survey in Cache Valley, I guess? Yes. Uh, yep. up, up here, do, do we know how this uh, compares to perceptions of homelessness, say, in the Wasatch Front? Salt Lake. You know, I'm not aware of a survey being conducted, a similar survey conducted in in the Wasatch Front, but I have to imagine um, homelessness is a really, uh, it's become a really politicized issue, I'd say, over the last 10 years, certainly, and it's really ramped up in the last six or seven. Um, And so I'd imagine that those numbers are maybe a little bit lower along the Wasatch Front, but that's just speculation. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Janet Boldness, uh, one um, you know one question that does come up is, or I guess a fear, if you if you do any type of service like a warming center, this will attract people from, you know, outside the community. And I, I don't know what you, uh, you know, surveys or or numbers you put together from last season. Um, whether I, I expect uh, this was mostly local folks who were served. They they are local, yes, and I and I do understand that that was one of the fears of the community. But um, everybody rallied together and thought, let's let's give it a try. The first season, um, they they are local. Like I like we said earlier, um, I don't know what the percentage was, but I know a good number of our guests um, had jobs in the community, so that keeps them local. They would either, and sometimes they would have to get up in the middle of the night and go to their job, or they would come to the come to the center in the middle of the night, get just getting off of their shift, have a good night's rest, um, have a quick little breakfast in the morning, and get up and go again the next morning. Um, we did have one or two um, guests that were maybe passing through, and their car broke down, needed a place to stay. But um, the majority of our guests, the majority of our nights, um, were local. Mm-hmm. Um, so just Lucero, I guess the, I think the closest shelter is Ogden. Yeah, is it? Yeah, yeah. that's the Lantern House would be the closest yeah. formal homeless shelter. And one thing that to connect to what Janet's sharing here, I think is important to know is, um, you know, homelessness isn't as visible here. 
So during the daytime, we're not necessarily seeing folks who um, show visible signs that they are unhoused, right? We might see occasionally um, somebody who's panhandling in, in our area, and, and then that will quickly connect to myths and ideas that we have about what homelessness looks like. But here in, in our community, you know, last year's pit count, we had over 30 um, folks who still who were unsheltered, so weren't even yet connected with the warming center. We had well over, I think it was 100 and, 140 or so folks who were sheltered either at CAPSA or the warming center or in motels. Um, and so it's a really, it, it's a surprising number when people hear that. It's just how extensive homelessness really is here. Um, and I think that then that is really uh, um, connected to what Janet was saying. Uh, I think that is an important point and that probably had probably uh, colors perceptions uh, if um, you know you have a bunch of uh, homeless people on the street right versus kind of hidden yeah unfortunate that would color the perception but probably does it does and and I think to to Janet's point about being you know you you have kids in school here you have a job here you have you have other um, ties to this community that make getting to Ogden um, really unrealistic Right. And so um, that that perception, too, of if if we have a, a resource like a warming center or shelter or something of that emergency nature, that it's going to attract homelessness. Homelessness is here. We just don't see it. Yeah. Uh, so, Janet Boldness, uh, I think a shelter would, um, you know, it's more services, but I, I believe the center does have information on services, right? Yes, we do. We provide um, we provide them with we, they they go through an exit interview at the end of the season. Um, throughout the season as well, we have somebody there that can help them fill out job applications if if they are in search or if they may not um, know how to do that. We provide that service to them. We've also got different pamphlets and and um, different resources that we can refer them to if they need um, some mental health help or if they need some physical health help. They may need, um, uh, they may not be aware of the organization um, called Bragg. They may not know about the food pantry. Um, we also offer them some vouchers so that they can go to the, the DI or somebody's attic and um, they are, they're able to get like coats, hats, boots, whatever they may need or maybe a nice pantsuit for an interview. Um, we also provide them with um, some punch passes so they can go to the rec center and have a shower mm -hmm. um, so that they feel clean and they feel good to go to an interview. So we're trying in, in, in our own small way to help them get through their day and get to that next level in their life. Mm -hmm. And what do they say? What, they, what, you know, what, you know imagine you have conversations about how their life's going and some are more private than others mm -hmm. some are really um, open and willing to tell their story or what their needs are but we want to let them know that we're there for them and if they would like somebody to chat with um, we can either direct them to a caseworker um, if, if they want to reach out for help some of them want to try to just figure things out on their own um, some are more verbal than others just like all of us. Yeah, yeah. Uh, just Lucero, uh, tell me a little bit more about point in time. 
uh, count? This happens in January? Yeah, the, the point in time count happens at the end of January every year. It's one single night. It's the same night across the entire country. Um, everyone who receives those those federal dollars um, uh, in the, in their community are, are mandated to participate in this count. It gives us a snapshot of of homelessness, and it allows us to compare across jurisdictions the extent of homelessness, both sheltered and unsheltered. So, folks who are sheltering, like the center, like like Capsa in their in their uh, domestic violence shelter, um, New Hope in Brigham City is another domestic violence shelter. Um, they're they're uh, turning in their shelter count. And then we're going out um, in the early, early mornings uh, hours um, and surveying folks who uh, who are unhoused and um, trying to get a better sense of both the demographics and then also to connect them to resources. And last year, what was so exciting, I have to tell you, Tom, this was the first uh, point in time count that we had done where we had a resource where we could point them to for that very next day. And yeah. we knew it was zero barrier to get in. And Janet, it was it was incredible for our point in time count volunteers. Because oftentimes those volunteers feel really hopeless mm-hmm. in, in our area and unable to assist really and connect. And so that was really amazing. I can imagine that. You go out to your you're doing the survey, important work, right? But you also want to help, right? Yep. <laughs> so yep. now now you can point them somewhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, Jenna Bonus, uh, imagine uh, people potentially going to the center or people volunteering would have a question, is, is it going to be safe? That is a big key word, and, and we really stress that over and over and over. Um, again, our mission for the Warming Center is to provide, number one, safe, warm place for those who are unhoused during the coldest nights of the year. Um, so we train our volunteers in ways that they can remain safe and our guests that come in feel safe physically, emotionally, mentally, um, 100% safe. Um, we have a protocol when our guests are walking in the door uh, as far as keeping their belongings safe. We have lots of procedures in place they can take. Uh, one personal belonging into Champ Hall. Champ Hall is the area that we call that they actually spend the night in Champ Hall. They have one personal belonging that they can take in there. The rest of their belongings are put into a secured bin that's numbered, um, and our volunteers keep track of all that. A lot of our guests also have medications that they bring in, but we also want that to be safe. We have children in that room as well, so we don't want that medication to get into the wrong hands. So that medication is also um, put into a safe into a safe uh, filing cabinet with their uh, name, and that's also numbered. And they can come to the desk at any time and take their prescription medication um, at the sites of a volunteer. But uh, again, we want to keep the children safe. We want to keep all of the guests safe and all of the volunteers safe. So we do have uh, procedures and policies in place for that to happen. Um, so one of the things we want to do this hour is to encourage people to volunteer. So tell us, uh, if we've convinced somebody, <laughs> tell, tell us how they can do that. Absolutely. They can always go to our website. Uh, warming. They can Google Warming Center Logan, Utah, and that will take them to our, our website. But they could also go to wabwarmingcenter.org. WAB is William A. Bernard, W-A-B, warmingcenter.org. 
when they, once they get to that website, it will just walk them through how they can get involved and volunteer, and they would fill out a form, go through a series of uh, training modules, and um, then the then they would hear from me. They would get a phone call or an email from me, and I'll get them onboarded and get them started. All right. Um, one of the things they can do, and I'm sure you need people for this, is uh, you know to be there overnight. Yes. Right. Um, uh, so tell me how that works, and then and then talk about how other ways people can volunteer. So on site, uh, we currently have our uh, hours of operation open operation. From uh, the volunteers come at six, our guests arrive at seven, um, and then in the morning, um, our guests are expected to leave by eight a.m. So uh, we have to have at least two volunteers on site at all times for us to be open. Um, a lot of times during check-in and check-out time, we have more than that because it, it gets a little chaotic and and people are coming in to quickly get in out of the cold. Um, we have people checking in, and so we've got various jobs for the volunteers to do to get them settled in and get them comfortable for the evening. So we'll have about uh, four or five or six volunteers um, during check-in at 6 o'clock. Um, I'll release a few volunteers at 10. Our lights go out at 10, and then there's a quiet time starting at 10 o'clock p.m. Um, where we want people to be settled in their cots and think about going going to sleep for the evening. Um, so a few of them remain from 10 to 12. Then we have another shift that comes in at midnight and stays around the clock until about 5.30 in the morning. That's two volunteers because it's it's quiet, one in Champ Hall and one by the check-in, check-in desk. Um, when that um, set of volunteers leaves, then we have a crew that comes in of about four or five volunteers to check the guests out. And again, we've got policies and procedures in place, so... Um, our guests feel like the belongings that they brought in were safe and they'll be getting their correct belongings back again and nobody has tampered with anything. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we clean up when the guests leave and and then we also have a, a laundry crew that comes in and picks up the sheets and blankets and whatnot, cleans everything up, takes it to the laundromat, brings it back the next, that afternoon. We get things set up again for that evening. Uh, so those are on-site, uh, mm-hmm. I guess, for the for the, for the laundry. Uh, what other things can people, I, I guess, for example, people can give money? Absolutely. Um, there's lots of donations that we need, monetarily and in-kind donations. Um, we cannot take used items, unfortunately, um, for, for lots of different reasons, um, like coats and hats and, and blankets and some of those types of things, we ask that they're donated and brought to the DI or somebody's attic. And like I said, we've partnered with them and, and um, put together a voucher program. So in a roundabout way, they do end up getting to our desks, our, our guests. We just don't have the storage to keep all of those items. They get big and bulky and we don't have the space for them. Um, but we do need off-site volunteers as well. We've got um, snacks, like I said, that we've provided. So we need to have somebody pick those up at the food pantry daily. We do provide our guests with hygiene kits. um, So people have to put those together. We do provide um, clean socks and backpacks and and various items like that, razors, um, lots of different things like that. 
um, cleaning the facility. We're very gracious that St. John's has uh, provided that space for us, but we want to respect that space and keep it clean and and keep it um, presentable for them, for their congregation. Um, And speaking of St. John's, then they like to use, they need to use their space on Sunday after their uh, worship service in the morning. So our warming center collapses down, all the cots and everything are, are folded up, put away, and we set their reception hall back up as they like it. Then again, Sunday evening in preparation for our guests to come, we do all of that in reverse. So I need crews to come in. Um, in and out to do that kind of thing. So it is on-site in a sense, but it's off-site in a sense that things are happening behind the scenes and and guests are not present when they're there working. So a lot of different things that, that you can do. Tell me again how, how, how people get connected. Yes, absolutely. Um, our website is wab, W-A-B, warmingcenter.org. Yeah. Uh, and the the fiscal address, it's what, 1st East and 1st North? Exactly. Yeah, this is St. John's Episcopal Church. Mm-hmm. And our entrance is in the back of the church, um, right next to Lenone, facing 1st East. And it opens up on December 4th. Correct. Yeah. Well, wonderful. Um, just a few minutes left here. Um, Justice Sarah, I wanted to, to talk about specifically, we, you know, we have this specific um, service, Right, you can refer people to the William A. Bernard uh, Warming Center. Wonderful service to have. Second season now coming up. Um, what else? If you encounter somebody, have a family member, friend who's maybe on the verge or maybe is homeless, what what can you do? Yeah, yeah, we have we have a number of other resources in in our community. Um, I think you know, as I as I mentioned, domestic violence being a major cause of homelessness, we're we're really lucky to have CAPSA here who can serve folks who have experienced domestic violence. Um, we also have uh, Bear River Association of Governments or BRAG, who's operating um, many of our homeless service programs. They they operate a rental assistance program called Rapid Rehousing. They have a number of other funding sources depending on what kind of household type it is. Um, and these are programs that will um, get folks into housing with some rental assistance um, in the private rental market um, for qualifying individuals. And so, you know, I would encourage folks to um, also then encourage others to reach out to Bragg and get connected with with their homeless services team. They're really wonderful folks there. Um, and they work really um, in tandem with, with, with the warming center. We have a few other uh, resources that I think are um, worth mentioning. Bragg, Bragg is also doing what's called diversion, um, which is, uh, I think earlier in the show, Tom, you'd asked, well, if, if someone has had a, f- a family or friend, right? And so sometimes that the best way to, to um, uh, prevent homelessness is to just right at the beginning to divert it. Um, because once somebody will get into that, that homeless service system, it becomes even a little bit more difficult for them to get out. And so, you know, uh, caseworkers at Bragg will help try to divert homelessness to staying with a friend or family member or thinking about other ways that you can maintain some stability in your housing. Um, 
we have some uh, what would be considered transitional housing resources in the community. Um, the Ville property is is one that's the old Econo Lodge. Um, you know, I'm not sure what their waitlist looks like right now, but it's a low low barrier uh, transitional housing, um, which is fantastic. Um, so we're we're really one of the one of the areas that we're most in need of in our community. That unfortunately, does not exist in at least at the scale that is needed is permanent supportive housing, and that would serve folks who have, are, have much higher barriers to getting back into housing. Those are often those folks who are chronically homeless. Yeah. Uh, so I guess one contact point would be Bear River Association of Governments, right? A, a yep. good a good kind of entry uh, yeah. place for that Bear River Association Yeah, of Tom, I'll, I'll also mention, I think Janet alluded to some of those other um, groups that exist in the community. There's a number of other grassroots organizations like families, Utah Families Feeding Families and Four Helping Hearts um, that are operating porch pantries and other kinds of what I would classify as diversion and prevention kinds of, of resources as well. Yeah. Well, some great resources. Appreciate uh, both of you talking about this uh, today. We've been spotlighting the William A. Bernard Warming Center, and you can find them at wabwarmingcenter.org. Uh, yes. Dot org. Um, and, uh, yeah, or I guess you could, once it's open, you drop by the St. John's Episcopal Church. Absolutely. Absolutely. Our doors open for the guests at 7 p.m. Yeah. Uh, beginning December 4th. Correct. Yeah. Um, we've been talking with Janet Voldus, who's volunteer coordinator for the William A. Bernard Warming Center. Thanks for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you for having us, Tom. And we've also been talking with Jess Lucero, who's head of the Department of uh, Social Work at Utah State University and point-in-time count lead for Bear River. Thanks for coming in. Glad to be here. Thanks, Tom. We're going to take a break, and then after the break, we'll have a couple of our great uh, segments, uh, Eating the Past and Wild About Utah. Thanks for listening to the program. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and USU's College of Agriculture and Applied Sciences with a degree in animal and dairy science founded on hands-on founded on hands-on learning in animal production and management, preparing students for careers in farming and research. Information at caas.usu.edu. This is Wild About Utah. When I looked up at the cloudy sky on October 14th, I was dismayed. I was so looking forward to watching the partial solar eclipse predicted to be at its height in Cache Valley at 10.15, but the sun was hidden behind heavy clouds. Refusing to give up all hope, I slipped my eclipse glasses into my pocket and headed up a hiking trail on the Wellsville Mountains. At 10.10, I stopped on an open ledge, put the glasses on, and looked up into the sky. I saw nothing but absolute, total black. I waited a few minutes. I put the glasses back on. This time, I saw the darkness thinning, and behold, a golden croissant appeared in the black sky. In very slow motion, the moon continued to slide across the glowing crescent, reducing it to a thin golden semicircle. It was spellbinding for me because this partial eclipse was so different from the three total eclipses I'd already seen. This time my attention was on the big black moon rock sailing slowly across a spot of light. In the past, watching a total eclipse was all about the sun disappearing. 
My first eclipse was in 1961. My high school physics teacher had taken us on an all-night bus ride. In the morning, the bus pulled over in an olive grove. I will never forget how the color drained out of the countryside. The birds stopped singing. We felt the chill as the temperature dropped. My second total eclipse was on a ship in the middle of the Atlantic Ocean. We were on course to intercept the path of totality when it started raining. The ship's captain gunned the engines and somehow found a bit of open sky. We counted down. Three, two, one, zero. The sun disappeared and the stars came out. We took off our glasses. We held our breath. And then a tiny spot of hot sun poked out on the sun's aurora and what looked like a giant engagement ring spread across the sky. My third eclipse was near the Grand Tetons in 2017. This time, I was fascinated by the small crescents of sunlight shadows dancing across my shoes. In ancient times, the temporary extinguishing of the sun caused quite a bit of fear. The Chinese thought a giant dragon was taking bites out of the sun. They beat drums to drive the dragon away. In other countries, warriors shot flaming arrows into the sky to ignite the lost fireball. We still have much to learn about the moon, the sun, the stars, and beyond. But what I learned this year was that the sun is 400 times the size of the moon. The moon is 390 times closer to the earth. This allows the sun and moon to appear to us to be about the same size. So when the moon slides between us and the sun, sometimes it covers the sun completely. And when the moon is at its farthest point from the earth, it leaves the fiery edges of the sun exposed, the ring of fire. It's a math problem with moving parts, but mathematicians can predict exactly when the next total eclipse will be visible in North America. Set your calendar for April 8, 2024. This is Mary Hears, and I'm Wild About Utah. Welcome to Utah Public Radio's Eating the Past and Other Tasty Morsels, a show that explores all things food. Your hosts are Jeannie Sir, Jamie Sanders, Laura Gelfand, and Tammy Proctor, all from Utah State University. I'm Laura Galfand, and I'm thrilled to be joining this august group of food explorers for this, the third season of Eating the Past. And this is Jamie Sanders. Today, we continue to explore what exactly makes a dumpling a dumpling. Devoted listeners will recall that last week, Tammy Proctor and Jeannie Sir explored the Oxford English Dictionary definition of the term dumpling, but found it so general that it left both of them and probably our listeners not much more certain about what exactly can be considered a dumpling and what can't be. Yeah, Laura, I'm not sure we're going to do much better. I think in many cultures, a dumpling has to have something inside of it, be it meat or vegetables, savory or sweet. But in a future episode, I'm going to talk about a dish we often ate growing up, chicken and dumplings, in which the dumpling has nothing inside of it. It is just a mass of dough cooked in the chicken broth. The only thing that seems to be essential is the use of dough to make a dumpling. Whether it's filled or not doesn't seem to change the definition, and how it's cooked also seems unrelated. But if that's the case, how do we distinguish a dumpling from anything else made with dough, like a pastry or bread? 
I could say that the use of yeast, but I'm sure risen dumplings exist out there, and that still doesn't solve the pastry problem. We could say, while the inside of the dumpling may be sweet, the dough around it is not, but I doubt that is universally true either. I'm going to fall back on the definition used by Supreme Court Justice Potter Stewart in 1964 when asked how he defined pornography, but he might as well have been talking about dumplings. I know it when I see it. I bet chefs in many different cultures could not strictly define a dumpling, but nonetheless they are sure what is and is not a dumpling in their own minds. And it's also important to consider that one reason dumplings were invented independently all over the globe is because they're an efficient way to stretch expensive ingredients. You use less meat and vegetables when you wrap it in cheap dough. And if you have an abundance of grain, it's a way to use it up. When food is a limited resource and your supplies are variable, the dumpling is a great way to make more with less. So dumplings are not so different from so many of the other great food inventions of the world. How to do more with less. How to take something basic, wheat, corn, or rice flour, and make something delicious. We talk about barbecue a lot on this show, and ultimately that is the origin of barbecue brisket. How do we take the toughest, chiefest part of the cow and turn it into something delicious? It seems to me that dumplings are the same. Let's use the leftover scraps we have, the little bits of pork or chicken after the prime cuts have been taken away, the vegetables that might be past their prime, and mix them all together. Wrap them into one thing we do have a lot of, some type of grain flour, and make something extraordinary. So a mystery wrapped in an enigma. Sneaky, clever, and delicious. The dumpling does it all. Thanks for listening. You can find this and other Eating the Past episodes at upr.org. And join us next week as we continue our world tour of all things that someone, somewhere, has called a dumpling. Every Sunday at noon, right before the Splendid Table, on your UPR station. Commemorating the completion of the Transcontinental Railroad in Utah, a 43-foot gold-plated monument is following the original route to arrive in Salt Lake City on October 23rd. Utah Public Radio celebrates. Ride along with us. A teacher passed through a major earthquake completely unaware while riding the train and only heard about it from her colleagues after she got off Cache Valley's affectionately named Galloping Goose. But she wasn't surprised. Said Renee Karen, riding in that thing was an earthquake all by itself. For more stories from Utah's railroading past, find the UPR original series Ride the Rails on upr.org or the UPR app. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Salt Lake Magazine, covering entertainment, dining, and culture in Salt Lake City, Utah for more than 30 years. Subscription and advertising information can be found at saltlakemagazine.com. You're listening to Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, and also heard at upr.org. <laughs>